Welcome to the Find Your Nutrition Podcast. Here, we'll discuss nutrition for health, wellness, and energy for everyday life. What's up, everyone? Today, we have a really exciting episode. I interview Dr. Camila, who is a family doctor in the UK. Usually she just has 10 minutes with her patients, but today we have an hour with her and she's reviewing how to reverse prediabetes or diabetes and control your glucose levels. She also talks about the importance of a healthy gut microbiome and she talks about especially the importance in childhood of glucose control. So in addition to all of that, she talks about a lot more topics and what she recommends to her patients. So it's a really great listen, and we'll get right into it. So here is the interview. Hey, Dr. Camila, welcome to the Find Your Nutrition podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. It's amazing to have you. I saw so many of your Instagram reels and the the recipes that you post there. It's really, really amazing. Oh, thank you. It's a very, at the moment, it's a very small Instagram account that I literally just do in my free time, partly sort of as a hobby and partly as a kind of way for me to educate my patients outside of my clinic. But yeah, it's, I'm really happy that I managed to meet you through it. Yeah, it's amazing. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background and what you're doing now? Yeah, yeah. So um, I am a GP in England. I'm a locum GP. So that means I kind of float around a few different GP surgeries usually. And background, I'm half Danish, quarter English, quarter American, so a bit of a mixture. <laughs> um, and I grew up in a few different countries. So my my cultural background is quite confusing because I lived in Italy. I lived in Denmark, Switzerland, Australia, wow. Italy. Yeah. So um I had lots of different food cultures and I went to international schools. So I think for me, that was part of why I'm such a foodie because I just became so engrossed in all the different food cultures where we were living, but also with my friends who were all from different countries. Um, And I recently qualified as a GP. So I've been working as a GP or a family doctor uh, for about a year now. But um, in over that kind of year and a little bit before that, I became really interested in lifestyle medicine, which is something you've probably heard of. And it's becoming this emerging new new kid on the block in medicine. Um, and I'm really interested in it. So, yeah, that's me. Awesome. All the different countries. What's your favorite food culture? Oh, that's such a difficult question. Um I suppose uh, because my parents have been living in Italy um, ever since I kind of moved away from university, it's become home and it was a place that we went to very regularly and we lived in for a while. So we became very accustomed to the Italian way of eating, which is really simple and it's kind of down to simple ingredients um but like good quality ingredients so that's probably my go-to and what I feel most familiar with but um what I love about Instagram is it's a place where you get to learn so much about other food cultures that you've just never come across so I'm, I'm trying to experiment with a few other things like new spices and all sorts of other things I'm open to all foods but Italian is probably the one that I feel most at home with what are some of the ingredients that they use that you really connect to? 
Uh, so extra virgin olive oil uh, mm -hmm. is a really big thing for me, and it's um, something that I've uh, kind of U-turned um, on in recent years because it was such a big part of my childhood to just drench everything in extra virgin olive oil. I didn't think about it. And then it was only as I became older that I started to do what everyone else was doing. You count calories and you think, oh, no, like, I have so many calories, it's not good for me. And so I really left behind what was culturally a normal thing to do. And now I've fallen back in love with it because I've realized actually a lot of what we've been taught about calories was actually wrong. And extra virgin olive oil has incredible properties, loads of polyphenols. It's really good for heart health and it's so incredible and so good for us. So that that's one of the main ingredients. Um, and then I think what people don't understand, and I think this, I don't know if you've had this experience, but with a lot of food cultures, they'll be interpret, they'll be kind of taken by the Western community and they'll interpret in their in their own way. Um, so a lot of people think of pasta and pizza um, and that kind of very cheesy food, very calorific food as being traditionally Italian, but that's not what I was necessarily exposed to. I'd say that actually what they really eat are just buckets and buckets of vegetables. It's a very simple, hearty kind of eating, especially in Tuscany where I spent most of my time. Um, really, they eat what you would class as peasant food, so really cheap simple food, lots of beans. Um, so yeah, that's the kind of food that I really enjoy. Awesome. Yeah, I saw also on your page tons of amazing salad ideas and really tasty looking dressings and things I really want to try myself. Yeah, thank you. I'm kind of exploring with a few, especially salads, because I've been, um, have you heard of Tim Spector? No, I have. I'm I'm obsessed with him. He's he's kind of leading the way with a lot of nutrition science and stuff about the gut microbiome and I've read most of his books now. I'm such a geek, but um one of the things he talks about is different salads and I never realized that not all of them are as um healthy for us as you would think. So um an example is iceberg lettuce. It's it's virtually devoid of any real nutrition. It's just water and fiber. Um, and then you compare that to some of the other kind of slightly bitter leaves uh, or more colorful ones, which have loads of incredible phytochemicals or phytonutrients in them. And they're so, so incredibly healthy for you. So um, I've, I've kind of been exploring that a little bit more with salads. What would be some of those more nutritious leaves that you like using? Um so radicchio is one example. It's a little bit bitter, um, but it's funny. I think your palate changes with time, especially with what you're eating. And as your gut microbiome changes, that can change the kind of foods that you want to eat, which that's a whole subject <laughs> on For its sure. own. But it is we'll really, it, yeah, it's really interesting to see how your palate changes as you change your lifestyle. And you've probably noticed that yourself with the kind of lifestyle changes that you've made. So for me, I used to think it tasted horrible and it was really bitter. But now when I eat it, I genuinely don't think it tastes bitter. I just think it tastes really nice. And then rocket um, is quite punchy, um, or I think it's called arugula, arugula as well. Yeah, yeah. Also. yeah. And then um, kind of the less tightly bound, more frilly varieties because they're more vulnerable to pests. Um, they need more chemicals in them to protect the plant, but those chemicals are really healthy for us. Um, and colourful ones in general are going to be better for you because all of those colours signal that there are polyphenols which are really good for your gut microbiome and your health overall awesome 
Okay, so let's get a little into glucose regulation and prediabetes and diabetes. So how Yeah, we're would... going off on a tangent, are we? <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. So how would you as a family doctor or a GP um, go about helping someone to reverse prediabetes or diabetes if they got to that? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and I think it's actually, a lot of people don't realize this, that this is only becoming something we're even attempting to do in the last sort of eight years. Um, so when I was at medical school, it wasn't even part of the conversation. People didn't realize that you could reverse diabetes, which is mind blowing. And I think maybe a lot of people with diabetes or pre-diabetes don't even appreciate that they can because very quickly, the main conversation that they're having with doctors straight away is, oh, medication, what do I need to take? But um, I think it's quite empowering to know that, no, this isn't something you have to live with forever. And there are loads of techniques. Um, I want to justify going off on a tangent about the gut microbiome by briefly mentioning the microbiome. Um, it's a very new area of science, which has only kind of been discovered in the last 10 years. And it's one of the things that I'm most interested in. Um, and I feel like a broken record because this is a conversation I have with so many patients. I always say, oh, have you heard of the gut microbiome? And I just repeat the, the same story that I tell everyone. But basically, um, in your gut, you've got 100 trillion different bacteria and parasites, viruses, fungi, all kinds of things. Um, and we used to think that they didn't do anything. We didn't even know we had that many because we didn't have the technology to test for them. Previously, we could only ever grow bacteria on agar plates where you would have um, oxygen in, in the environment, but most of the bacteria in your gut obviously don't have any oxygen around them. So we literally had no way of looking at them until we had the kind of DNA technology that we have now. So that's actually how we've been able to research them. We map their DNA and that's how we discovered that we had so many. And like I said, we used to think they didn't really do anything. We appreciated that they might have produced maybe the odd vitamin and they kind of maybe helped break down some of the fiber. But other than that, they were just thought to be this kind of almost inconvenient thing in your bowel because it contributed to bacterial infections and that kind of thing. But actually, they're massively, massively responsible for health. And it's completely changing the whole medical community and how we we approach so many different diseases so it's so relevant in things like mental health they produce most of your serotonin and your dopamine um it's really relevant for weight gain uh, because they massively decide whether or not you gain weight um, and that's why some people will have the experience that they really struggle with weight after they've been on a long course of antibiotics or people might remember that in their childhood they had loads and loads of antibiotics and then after that they weight always became a problem for them and it's not just their fault there are so many other things that are contributing and one of those is the gut microbiome that's to me just so fascinating um, but the other thing that is incredibly relevant is your blood sugar control because the gut microbiome produce um, chemicals called postbiotics uh, which are then absorbed into your bloodstream and the postbiotics significantly impact how your body responds to blood sugar uh, and I, I just find that so crazy that that <laughs> that this is even a thing um and it, it's just so empowering to know that you're not just the result of your genes that you can completely manipulate the biology of your body and how sensitive you are to um to sugar so microbiome number one i, I briefly kind of tried to 
touch on that subject with them. Um, and then they always ask me, oh, well, so how, just very briefly, how can I improve my microbiome? And I just say to them, we've got 10 minutes together. I can't even begin to explain. <laughs> um, and so my technique, and I hope this is useful for any GPs or family doctors out there or any other doctors, um, is that I send them resources. So in England, um, we didn't have a huge amount of technology before the pandemic, but one of the good things about the pandemic for GP in particular was that it kind of forced, I don't know if it was the government or whoever, but it forced us to put a little bit of money into technology. And they came up with this thing called AQRX, um, which is it's so, so simple, but it's revolutionized how we treat patients. It's basically a little... Um, device in a way that allows us to send emails and text messages to patients and then that automatically populates in the notes so you can show that you've sent it and you you can also do video calls through it um, which is helpful and patients can reply to you and then their reply can go in the notes um, so I use AcuRx and create these little uh, templates so whenever I see a patient I'll say to them oh you want to know about the microbiome okay that's fine I'll send you my microbiome template it takes me two seconds to send it and then I've given them hours of education in two seconds but you have to trust that they're going to go away and then actually listen to it um, and then very briefly the other ways that I um, specifically try to target pre-diabetes and diabetes you, you will know about um, glucose goddess um, sure. or glucose revolution I personally think that she should pay me for the <laughs> the increase <laughs> in book sales because I literally almost yeah. every patient I see I ask them to read her book or listen to her audiobook or check out her Instagram account um, so her techniques are just revolutionary and then the other technique is time-restricted eating, which is also really good for your gut microbiome. And then the last thing I talk to them about, and this shocks people that I even bring this up, but I um, ask them if they do any weight training or any resistance training. And it's incredible how few people do this. And at, at different ages, they think it's outrageous that you've even asked them to do it. But you're never too old to do resistance training. And because your muscle mass is the main sponge for glucose in your body and it, it completely affects how insulin resistant you are. One of the most powerful things you can do to change your, your own biology is to do weight training. So I ask mm -hmm. all of them to start doing some form of weight training as well. And yeah, sorry, that's my long ramble over. <laughs> <laughs> do you give them any specific weight training to do? Sometimes, yeah. So, um, Again, you have to remember, I get 10 minutes with patients and usually, yeah, we've already massively overrun. And so trying to cover lifestyle medicine like that is really difficult. So again, it's me sending resources. The only people I really send something specific to are elderly people who might be a little bit daunted by the prospect. But even if they're kind of in their 80s, 90s, and I, you should see the faces that I get when I mention it to them. They're like, you want me to do what now? Um, but there's this account um, called Feel Good with Lavina. She's on Instagram. She's got a YouTube account as well. And she, I think she's, she's a personal trainer who started it during lockdown as well, I think. And she mm -hmm. basically posts all of these really inspirational workouts. But with her mother-in-law, who's like, I don't know how she, old she is. She must be in her 70s or 80s. And um, she basically just demonstrates, look, you can either do my workout, 
that I'm doing, or you can do the workout where we make adjustments so that no matter what your age is, no matter what your abilities are, no matter whether you even have weights at home, you can just use like a a one litre water bottle or something else that's heavy in your house. Everyone is capable of building muscle. And so I literally will send them her YouTube account. um, And then for everyone else, I kind of just, yeah, I say look it up on YouTube or get a personal trainer or just do anything. Yeah, so it's mostly the nutrition, which we'll get into exactly what advice you have there, and the weight training and exercise. Yeah, okay. Okay, so let's get a bit into what actual nutrition recommendations would you give to someone who came in, they want to control their glucose levels, they want a healthy um, gut microbiome, like you said, Mm -hmm. as well the benefits to that. What kind of things would you recommend to them? So um, if we hone in on the gut microbiome, um, most of it is about what you're adding in. That's that's the philosophy that I really love about it because what I hate about the wellness culture and diet culture is that it's so restrictive and um, it, I think, has led a lot of people to develop not necessarily an eating disorder, but I think a lot of people have disordered thinking when it, or sorry, disordered eating. So they're thinking in a disordered way when it comes to food. Um, And I would say to anyone, if you find yourself constantly thinking about food or feeling guilty about food in any way, or feeling that you can't control how you're eating at any stage, you probably have a disordered relationship with food. And being obsessed with restricting food constantly is part of the reason why that happens for a lot of people. Whereas when it comes to boosting your microbiome, what's really positive about it is that you're mostly not talking about what you're not eating. And it's not about calorie counting. Um, We probably don't have enough time to talk about why I disagree with calorie counting. But it's about really adding in foods and ingredients that are going to optimize your gut microbiome. So the main things that they live off, the the really healthy gut microbiome, are um, different sources of fiber. And that comes in all kinds of plants, whether that's herbs, spices, grains, uh, vegetables, fruits, um, all kinds of things count. Uh, People don't realize that coffee counts. Coffee, a, a good cup like a good quality cup of coffee has as much fiber in it as I think it's half a banana or something like that which is crazy and even good quality dark chocolate would count as um, a a source Um, and I I call these plant points Um, so the the goal is that you want to increase the diversity of your plant points because to have a really healthy microbiome you need a really diverse microbiome I think Tim Spector often compares compares it to a rainforest so if you want an ecosystem that works in harmony with each other, they all have different roles and um, a perfect example of a harmonious ecosystem is a rainforest. So you want to replicate that in your microbiome and have a huge variety of different bacteria, but healthy bacteria. And the, the tricky thing is that they all like different types of plants. So that's why by increasing the variety of plants that you're eating, you're increasing the diversity of your microbiome. Um, And the goal for a lot of people is, um, according to research, the kind of sweet spot that will really trigger a healthy microbiome is about 30 or so different types of plants a week, which is surprisingly easy to achieve. 
Um, but people don't think about it. And most people don't realize that if you look at a Western diet, most of us eat the same thing over and over again. And when we really ha don't have a diverse diet at all. So if you, a really simple trick is just to think next time you go to the supermarket, oh, well, I always buy apples. This week, I'm going to buy plums instead. And this week, rather than buying the standard broccoli I buy, I'm going to buy a different type of cabbage. And um, the diversity extends into the same group of plants. So if you have um, a different variety of the same plant, it will still count as a different plant point. So even if you're obsessed with apples like I am, and you think, no, 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 I'm still going to need my apples, otherwise I just won't be able to live. Um, you can just try to buy a different type of apple and then you're still increasing the variety. Um, so yeah. Plant variety is the, the main thing that's going to really optimize your gut microbiome. And that will be really good for your blood sugar control as well because of the downstream effects. Um, and then incorporating some fermented food is a, another really big thing. So a lot of people will say to me, oh, yeah, well, don't worry, I take Actimel or I've been taking these post, um, these probiotics. And I always oh, I kind of want to sigh and just think, oh, no, please don't do that. Um because with probiotics, I mean, there, it's a great way to make money at the moment. If you want to become a millionaire, just make some generic probiotic because everyone will fall for it, especially make it really expensive because people, we know with the placebo effect, the placebo effect works better if the, if the drug's really expensive. Um, yeah. We just have this flawed psychology amongst everyone. We're all guilty of it. If something is expensive, we automatically think it's good and it will be good for us. And there are so many people out there buying all kinds of supplements and tablets and vitamins that they think are going to be so good for their health but actually they don't realize there's no evidence behind it and that there will potentially be a place for um, probiotics but um you're kind of going in blind if you don't know what your microbiome looks like and most people don't know what their microbiome looks like so um microbiome specialists kind of joke that oh yeah if you want to go pop some probiotics that that would be the equivalent of you going to a doctor and saying, oh, would you be able to just give me some drugs? Just just any drug. I don't really care. Just give me a drug. You ultimately don't know what you're doing with it. So I, I don't encourage patients to spend money on probiotics. But um, where there is evidence is in um, fermented food. But it has to be real fermented food. So most, most of the time that's food that's in the fridge section. Um, because anyone who's made their own fermented food knows this. If it's not in the fridge, it will continuously ferment until it goes off. So it has to be in the fridge to to stop that process. And any kind of like fake fermented food out there that's on the shelf, like all of the kombuchas and that kind of thing, they're they're not real fermented food. They've already killed off all of the bacteria, which kind of defeats the point. Um, and then you could talk about the microbiome for ages, but other things like having enough omega-3 will be good for your microbiome. Um, just uh, it, They tend to like other things that are just generally good for your health. Um, Time-restricted eating is really good for your microbiome. It lets them have a rest, and it's really good for letting your gut rest in general. So that will actually optimize the gut microbiome. Um, and then not being excessively cleansing. So um, our culture, and this probably got worse with um, COVID, have been obsessed with bleaching everything and being super, super clean. But actually, that's not good for your microbiome. We're supposed to be exposed to a little bit of dirt. And that's why people who have pets, for example, um, or people who garden regularly will have a better microbiome. 
Uh, so that's, that's quite positive for people to know. And it has downstream consequences for other aspects of your health. Like um, I talked about how the microbiome affects everything in your health. It also talks to your immune system, which most of it sits in your bowel. Um, and your immune system can drive all kinds of uh, autoimmune conditions or um, kind of allergic type things. So one of the kind of interesting things that I loved hearing about was uh, eczema. Uh, which is kind of linked to your microbiome um, because your skin also has its own microbiome, which then talks to the gut. And we now know that people who have dogs will have better controlled eczema, which is really mind-blowing. Um, anyway, yeah, it's it's crazy. The microbiome is such an interesting thing. And then the, the last um, thing to boost your microbiome, um, you do have to think a little bit about the things that you're not going to eat. So the things that are going to be damaging for the microbiome. So unnecessary antibiotics, they're just going to wipe out all of the healthy bacteria. Um, and that doesn't mean never have antibiotics, but there are so many people who come to their GP two days into a cold and they want antibiotics. You're, if you're a healthy person, you, you should at least let your body try to fight an infection and then see how you go. Um, and then on the topic of antibiotics, be mindful that there are lots of antibiotics in foods. So um, especially in uh, meat and uh, fish. So if you do eat meat, uh, trying to go for organic options so that you're not getting uh, extra sources of antibiotics. And then the, the kind of big group of foods that I would really encourage people to cut out are ultra-processed foods in general. So as much as possible, make your own food, know the ingredients, make sure that if you look at a packet and it has ingredients listed, you would be able to go buy all of those ingredients yourself and cook with them. If the answer is no, I wouldn't be able to buy E59630 yeah. chemical, then it's not processed food and you should try to avoid it as much as possible. And the other big thing that I really encourage people to cut out um, are the ultra, no, sorry, not the, um, the artificial sweeteners. The gut microbiome really don't like those. And particularly for diabetes and pre-diabetes, people don't realise that a lot of the artificial sweeteners still spike your insulin. And the whole problem with type 2 pre-diabetes and uh, diabetes is that you're insulin resistant. So it's one of the biggest scams in the medical community and, and health um, to tell people, oh, don't worry, you don't need sugar, just put, art some, put some artificial sweeteners in it and you're not going to gain any weight. And you're not going to get diabetes is not true because you're still spiking your insulin. And there's no when they've done studies comparing diet soft drinks to full sugar soft drinks, there's no difference in weight gain because of that impact on insulin. Um, so yeah, that that's how I would optimize the gut microbiome in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to fermented foods a little bit, I saw on your page making like um, sauerkraut mm. and things like that. I really love kimchi. I love kimchi. Kimchi is so good for you. It's one of the best ones. Have you made it yourself at home? No, it's on my list. Um, I suppose the it's process is very, too. yeah, it's very similar to sauerkraut. Um, but I need to go buy the ingredients and I need to kind of like, yeah, plan ahead. But I want to do that. And I make a lot of kombucha. That's the other, the other thing mm. that I really like making. How do you make kombucha at home? Um, so you need a SCOBY, uh, which is a, a little collection of bacteria, yeast type cells, um, and you make some sweetened tea. I, I do it with um, jasmine green tea, so you get all the benefits of the green tea as well. And then you put the scoby inside that and set it aside for um, a week usually, and then it becomes kind of sour. 
the, there's a whole art to, to doing it. <laughs> Quite com- Well, not complicated, but you have to do it to your own taste. And then you can drink it just like that. Um, or afterwards, you can do a second stage called a second ferment where you add in other flavors. And then that's how it becomes bubbly, if that's what you want. Um, the good thing about kombucha is, I mean, I try not to drink sweet drinks at all, but kombucha yeah. is my one exception to the rule uh, because actually most of the sugar has been f- fermented off by the bacteria anyway. Um, and um, you're getting all the benefits of the bacteria. And there are also loads of vitamins in kombucha as well, which are really good for you. Mm-hmm. It's also on my list along with the kimchi. Yeah, yeah, you should totally do it. You should take a holiday and just call it like your fermentation holiday where you try lots of different things. Yeah. I also tried kefir when I was in the UK, actually. Oh, what did you uh, think? I loved it. It was really good. I had it with some raspberries and my my stomach actually was a little bit growling after, but uh, I thought it was a good thing, so... Yeah, it's really good. And if you don't, like some people just don't like the idea of just having a drink that's just like a yogurt drink. I always tell people to have the plain one, not uh, any of the sweetened ones with, again, artificial yeah, sure. chemicals and things. Um, but if you don't like the idea of just drinking it, you can turn it into a really nice salad dressing. So I put a little bit of tahini in, maybe some lemon juice, uh, salt. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's really nice like that as well. It's a good idea. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's get a little bit into what you recommend eating for glucose regulation. Yeah, so the the microbiome will change your biology, and weight training will train your tra- change your biology because it will make you um, generally better at dealing with blood sugar. Um, but what has really revolutionised the whole conversation around glucose control and reversing um, pre diabetes and diabetes. Um, are these things called continuous glucose monitors, which amazingly you can now buy yourself if you want to. Um, And a few years ago, they were so expensive that only type 1 diabetics could use them. And they were reserved only for the severest form of type 1 diabetes. The majority of people weren't allowed to use them because of how expensive they were, or at least in England, because we have the NHS and maybe in other countries where it's more private, they can, they've been able to afford to use it a little bit more. Um, But what's great is they've become cheaper. And so scientists have started to play around with them. And they've discovered all of these incredible trends uh, that kind of show some of the most surprising things that will influence your blood sugar in ways that you would never have expected. Like, vinegar can drop your blood sugar spike from the exact same food by 30% or changing the order in which you eat. So you make sure you eat your your leafy vegetables, your fiber-full vegetables first or even nuts. And then you after that, you have the proteins and fats. And only after you've had that do you have your carbohydrates and then after that, the kind of more sugary things. And even though you're eating the exact same food, you're dropping your glucose spike by 70%, which then has an impact on how much insulin your body's pushing out. I, I just find that so mind-blowing and interesting to know that you, you're eating the same food, but you're making these really subtle changes that significantly impact how your body responds to the same food. Uh, and, and for a lot of patients, I hope that's really empowering that you don't have to completely change your life or what you're eating to have a better impact on your blood sugar. Um, but all of these uh, techniques, and there are way more than that, have been summarized by this incredible author called Jesse and Charles Spain. Uh, and I, I think 
maybe some people don't realize that she hasn't come up with all of these techniques and she's very open about that and says this is just me summarizing genuine science that's been rigorously tested I'm not making this up Uh, she's Mm -hmm. just been testing some of those um, discoveries on herself and shows what happens to her own blood sugar and um, she she wrote this really uh, well-written book that I think anyone could understand if they tried that summarizes these techniques and um, that's that's one of the the books that I really recommend everyone read it's not even if you don't have pre-diabetes or diabetes you're not worried about that just for your health in general because blood sugar control and insulin resistance is one of the biggest driving forces for most chronic diseases that you could potentially die from so if you really get on top of your blood sugar control you're giving yourself a better quality life and a longer life and day to day it massively affects your symptoms as well I don't know if you've experienced that by using her techniques that you you have you feel better in yourself hey everyone we'll get right back into the interview I just want to tell you that if you're enjoying the podcast and you want more interviews like this remember to subscribe as we have a lot more guests coming up soon and I just made a free pdf guide for reversing prediabetes and controlling your blood glucose levels and you know the importance of that from what dr camilla just said so if you want that guide just send me an email to findingyournutrition at gmail.com and say send me the guide and i'll send it right to your email once again the email is findingyournutrition at gmail.com i'll leave it at the bottom of the show notes and now let's get back to the interview yeah, I'll go about some of the changes I made to my diet and basically how it affected me. And you can jump in about maybe the science behind it and maybe yeah. other examples that you've had. Yeah, so, amazing. I'd love to hear more about how how you've kind of incorporated it all into your life. So I'll try to summarize it. So as a child and up until age about 13, I was super, super picky. I was eating white pasta, no olive oil, no healthy fats literally plain pasta. I would eat white rice and crackers and all the kind of processed carbs that now I try to minimize as much as possible. And so I did that for many years. And I was always thin, actually. So doctors were never worried or they never kind of told me I need to eat better. Like they thought I was fine. And um, and I was fine in the beginning. But eventually, as I grew older, I started to have some symptoms like for example i had blurry vision actually oh wow and i had i would be very tired after meals for example but it's something that you think is normal that kind of a lot of people seem to be tired after meals Mm. but only now after the fact when i'm eating way healthier and i have constant energy throughout the day do i realize actually the effect that those foods had on my body in the past Mm. um i'll try to think of some other ones let me think. So I had the blurry vision, the tiredness. Um, Were you thirsty at all? Yeah. So that was another big one. Thirsty all the time. Even if I went for a walk outside, I would want to bring a water bottle. Mm. And um, and because of that, I was always peeing, even yeah. in the middle of the night. So like have to wake up to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. That's weird. Sometimes. You're almost behaving like someone 50 years older than you, which... Yeah. yeah. And, and how, big, out of curiosity, how old were you when these symptoms started? Um, 
Well, actually, the, one of the biggest symptoms I had was actually in the morning, I felt really weak before eating. I feel like the first thing I had to do in the morning was eat, because if I went for an hour or two without eating, I would feel dizzy and almost weak. Mm. So that was one. I don't even remember when that one started, because I kind of feel like it's always been that way for as yeah. long as I can remember. That's interesting. But, um, but now that I can just go in the morning for hours without eating and, and feel completely fine, it's it's really amazing. It's like yeah. uh, really life changing. And like the being thirsty, were you were you in like in your twenties or how how old yeah. were you? Yeah. Yeah, um young twenties yeah. and mid twenties and um and it, again it's like not something that happened suddenly, so it's not something I even really thought about. Yeah, that's so interesting uh, and eye-opening for people to realize that you can be a thin person walking around very young and that doesn't protect you from having pre-diabetes. That, that's so interesting and I think a really important message for people that being thin doesn't mean that you're metabolically healthy. All of these rules that I'm not rules but um techniques that we talk about uh, are important for everyone you can't just assume that you're safe because you're thin yeah Dr. Peter Atia. I don't know if you heard about him no. he actually talks about a lot of thin people being metabolically unhealthy so it's definitely yeah. possible and it can... oh definitely and you've got the concept of skinny fat so people who look thin on the outside but actually they have a lot of visceral fat so they've got loads of fat around their organs which is really bad for your future health how could you know if you had something like that you you can't unless you get special testing um and that yeah i, I wouldn't even know how to go about organizing that you can have like fancy body scans um, but yeah. But anyway, like uh, with me, for example, you can change your diet and in less than a year, really get rid of all of those symptoms. Uh, nope, I don't have blurry vision anymore. I'm not tired. I'm not weak. I'm not thirsty all the time. Mm. Um, so all of it went away. And it's, it's really due to um, reducing the refined carbs and sugars. Mm. Um, I used to drink juice almost every day. Oh so my god! I, I, <laughs> juice is my biggest pet peeve. <laughs> so exactly. So I cut that out. I drink water, tea, coffee. And mm -hmm. That's pretty much it. Water. I'll put lemon juice sometimes if I want. Um, I cut out, not cut out fully, but I stopped eating a lot of dried fruits, yeah. so dates and cranberry and dried cranberries and things like that. Mm. Um, bread, just normal bread. I don't need it anymore. I know I actually had a CGM for a little while mm. and um, for a couple of weeks. So I saw the things that really spiked my glucose levels and pasta and bread and rice um, were all the ones spiking my glucose levels. Yeah, the so same I happened found... to me with bread. I was devastated because <laughs> <laughs> I love bread. Um, but it's okay without it. And I found other foods that are great replacements for it. beans, for example, and lentils. And actually for pasta, I really like pasta, but now I eat lentil pasta. Yeah, and I'll perfect. Eat it, I'll eat it with um, a healthy fat and some protein source in addition. And it's a much better choice for me. Oh, incredible. What about like quinoa and other grains? Have you tried any of those? Uh, I don't love quinoa, so I don't eat much quinoa, yeah. but I do eat 
lots of vegetables now, and I eat lots of beans and lentils. And in the mornings, I'll eat eggs and cheese and mm -hmm. and fruits. I'll have again as like a snack after a meal, like in the yeah. glucose focus method. And so if we just hone in on that, because you've just described a lot of the techniques. Technique number one is to make sure you're not starting with a sweet breakfast. And yeah. that's so difficult for a lot of people to do because it's such a huge part of Western culture to do that. Um, or if you're not having a sweet breakfast, you're having a, an incredibly carbohydrate-rich breakfast. And people mm -hmm. don't realize that all of that is breaking down into glucose, which is it takes very little time for your stomach to break it down most of the time, especially if there's not a huge amount of fiber. And then it gets absorbed into your bloodstream incredibly quickly. And then you get this huge, big blood sugar spike right at the beginning of the day. And the reason why it's important at the beginning of the day is because it sets the tone for the, the blood sugar reaction for the rest of the day. You'll end up on this extreme roller coaster where it goes too low. And then because it's gone too low, your body freaks out and it thinks, oh no, we're going to die. We don't have enough blood sugar. We're going to have to push it back up. So we're going to release lots of ghrelin, which is the hunger hormone, and make the, our host incredibly hungry, but not just a little bit hungry. We're going to make them hangry, so they need to eat right now. And then so you respond, you think, oh, what do I eat to make me feel better? And most people think, oh, I need something carbohydrate rich to make me feel better. So they'll eat something like a chocolate bar or a cereal bar or something like that. And then all that does is it spikes your blood sugar again and you have the same thing happen frequently throughout the day and you just feel horrible. Whereas you can completely avoid that trigger if you start with a savory meal that has lots of fiber, lots of healthy fat and protein. And that's precisely what you're doing with the eggs. Yep. And then another big one that you mentioned that I think wouldn't occur to most people and it never occurred to me is you don't eat fruit on an empty stomach. Like now exactly. for me, I think, oh, I would never do that. But I used to do it all the time and I never realized how much it was spiking my blood sugar until like you, I tried a CGM or continuous glucose monitor. And the biggest spikes I saw were from fruit. It was incredible. But as long as you eat that fruit at the end of a meal, because it has to, all of the glucose and fructose in that fruit needs to navigate all of the fiber and protein and fat that you've already eaten, its absorption is slowed significantly. And then you don't get that spike and all you're getting are the health benefits from the fruit. Yeah, it's amazing. It's really simple ways to change the ways of eating that can make the biggest impact. And you're still getting to eat it. That's the incredible thing. It's not like you're saying to someone, you're never allowed to eat fruit. You're just saying, be mindful about it. Also, maybe don't pick the really tropical, super sweet fruits. If you can, if you do have prediabetes and diabetes, pick some of the lower sugar fruits like berries, for example, or kiwis. Yeah. Um, and then just be mindful about when you're having them. And then what about movement? Do you incorporate that into the kind of timing of your meals as well? Yeah, so I try to walk as much as I can after meals, if possible, um, and do some exercise after meals. It can't always happen if, if you're busy or whatever, but um, I try to do that. And I did try to start weightlifting um, about six months ago. And Brilliant. yeah, so I'm trying to incorporate that as well on a regular basis. Yeah, that, that's really good. And that will make such a difference because the... I, um, I don't know if your audience will realize that with blood sugar, every time you get blood sugar um, spiking in your bloodstream, it spikes insulin. 
And the other really important thing is that fructose, which is another type of sugar that you find in table sugar, but also in fruit, will also spike insulin, but you won't see it. You won't see a glucose spike on your continuous glucose monitor. So they'll, they'll spike it in, separately. So you actually get a double spike of insulin from the fructose and the glucose. Um, and fructose is tricky because it can only be metabolized in your liver. So if you're overwhelming your liver with lots of fructose, you can end up having a non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which is something I'm seeing really, really commonly now. But um, I'm going off on a tangent. Uh, the thing that I was going to say was that what's so great about muscle is that it can absorb blood sugar through a different mechanism. And by doing that, it doesn't spike your insulin. I find that so mind-blowing. So literally, yeah. if you go for a 10-minute walk after you've eaten or not even that like just go do some household chores like do the sweeping or the vacuuming just for 10 minutes after you've eaten because you're activating your muscles you're not having to spike the insulin for the same food that you've just eaten so you're not going to store as much fat from the same food literally just because you're moving and that's yeah. such a simple trick but it has such an enormous effect on your body yeah it's really it's really a great thing to do. Even just cleaning the dishes and yeah, cleaning up the house a little bit after after eating dinner, for example. Yeah, just being on your feet can make such a difference. Yeah. Do you want to go a little bit into fructose now and what's the differences between fructose and glucose? Yeah. Um so I probably summarized most of it um there. The the great thing about glucose is that it can be used by the entire body, so it can be metabolized by any cell in your body. Um, where, and glucose is found in all forms of carbohydrates. Simple carbs are just chains of glucose. Um, you find fructose in other places. So in fruit, for example, you'll have a combination of glucose and fructose. And then in table sugar, which is added to virtually all ultra-processed foods these days, um, you'll have both um, fructose and um, glucose in the form of sucrose, which is um, another word for table sugar. And the issue with it is, like I said, it can only the fructose can only be metabolized by your liver. Now think of how small the liver is in comparison to the rest of your body. And so what we're seeing is that even in young children nowadays, young children with obesity are also starting to show signs of this. You get uh, fat building up in the liver. We call it non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And the reason why it's a problem is, I mean, obviously that's not a good thing, um, but in the kind of immediate future, that is going to dramatically increase your insulin resistance, which is not a good thing. Because remember, I said insulin resistance is one of the driving forces for most chronic diseases that are probably going to kill you one day. Um, and also things like the, the other big thing that I'm really um, passionate about is dementia or Alzheimer's. So we're calling Alzheimer's type 3 diabetes because it is so driven by blood sugar and insulin resistance and I think I catch people with that one because a lot of people can be quite dismissive and think oh heart disease strokes all that kind of that's so far away that's so much older but there's something emotional about Alzheimer's no one wants that and everyone yeah. assumes oh that's just that's a, a that's a, a lottery really you, it's just a genetic thing if you get it you're unlucky no for most people Alzheimer's is a preventable condition and we're only starting to acknowledge that now. So if you care about your health and you care about how you're going to spend the last few years on this earth, you should really, really care about your blood sugar. Um, 
just for the Alzheimer's, I want to jump in for one second. Mm-hmm. Even just for me in, in my own experience, not Alzheimer's, but memory. Mm-hmm. When I was having all the symptoms of prediabetes, that was a huge one. I had a lot of times I would just walk to a different room, for example, and forget why I went there. Like, what was I trying to get? What was I trying to do? Mm. That hasn't happened to me at all, I think, in the last year. So, that, yeah, that's so interesting. So you're describing the classic brain fog, where it feels like your your brain exactly. is sifting through fog to just come to any kind of solution or remember what it was you were doing a second like ago. I'm going, going to the other room to get my keys, for example, and then I go to the room and I I didn't remember I was actually getting my keys for a few seconds, and now literally just never ever happens and my concentration is amazing like in meetings at work I can just completely pay attention the whole time and Mm. and focus and in the past that would actually be a lot more challenging so that's another amazing benefit that I have yeah I have the same thing actually so I um my blood sugar I think has always been a problem for me it's always gone up and down I've, I've always struggled with brain fog um for a long time and um the other thing that's been an issue for me is dizziness and fainting so ever since I was a young child I've fainted very regularly and it's been really debilitating actually uh, and I never knew why people always t- told me it was just because I had low blood pressure but even when my blood pressure was fine I would still faint and now that I've learned about blood sugar control I realized actually it was my blood sugar it was dipping too low mm. and um it's it's a perfect example of how your blood sugar control can affect you day to day brain fog is a huge symptom that women with menopause really struggle with and um there are loads of patients that I bring blood sugar up with who don't have prediabetes and don't have diabetes and they're one of the main groups because um what we've noticed and your man's you're lucky your hormones stay the same all month whereas women ours change and they change in our lifetime our lifetime with the menopause um and I noticed this myself when I was using a continuous glucose monitor I didn't actually time it on purpose it's just how I I happened to put it on at the perfect time in my cycle where one week I was completely fine and the second week that I had it on was the week before my period and all of a sudden, my blood sugar went crazy from the same food. Mm. Um, and the same thing happens in perimenopause. All of a sudden, blood sugar control gets much, much worse. And so you, with the blood sugar dips that you're getting, you get all of the classic symptoms of increased anxiety or increased irritability. Uh, you get the intense brain fog, um, the extreme hunger or hanger. I used to get that all of the time. Dizziness fatigue, all of these kind of symptoms come with poorly regulated blood sugar because it's dipping too low and it's just making you feel horrible. Um, And what's also really interesting is for women who struggle with PMS, your blood sugar is much worse than that week before your period. So actually, a lot of those symptoms that women are getting when they're perimenopausal or they're going through PMS, it's not actually necessarily the hormones, it's the hormones effect on your blood sugar. So if you eat in a way that really optimizes your blood sugar, you massively improve those symptoms. Awesome. It's really, it's really amazing all the different uh, parts of life that glucose regulation can affect. Also with the dizziness, I actually had that too. You keep bringing up different symptoms that I had also. And hunger. Did you get hungry? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The dizziness is like when I would sit down for a while and then I would stand up, like everything would go black for five seconds. Mm. So, um, so that's another thing that completely disappeared ever since I really controlled my glucose levels oh that's incredible 
Okay, so what about childhood obesity? Why is glucose control important in childhood and what should we be teaching parents? Um, so this is a, a topic that's really close to my heart and it's actually why I started my Instagram account. Um, I was doing a research project looking at childhood obesity and I was trying to help some of um, the parents in my kind of local area and educate them about it. And the reason it's so, so important, I mean, we're seeing a huge explosion of childhood obesity in Western countries and it's quite frightening. Um, what, the reason why it's important is, A, if you're overweight as a child, it's very unlikely that you won't be overweight as an adult. It's almost a guarantee. Um, and that I, I, hope, I say that in the hope that there are lots of adults listening to this who will be a little bit compassionate towards themselves because they'll understand that there are so many influences and factors that affect your chances of struggling with weight. Uh, and it's not your fault. There are loads of things in our society that have changed. Um, and I mentioned the, the full um, the, the book uh, called um, The Full Diet by Sarah Hamid. She touches on that on a lot of the history of how we've gotten to where we are. And it teaches you a lot of compassion. So I really recommend her book for that reason. Um, but one of the reasons why it's so, so important is because insulin resistance, which is the driving force behind uh, pre-diabetes and diabetes, um, and so many other chronic diseases can begin very early in life. And it has a bit of a domino type effect. So it can even begin in the womb, which shocks me. And I hope it shocks your audience to know that actually this is a process that begins while you're in the womb. So if your mother, and this isn't me criticizing anyone, but I think it's really important that we start to acknowledge this as a society. If your mother has high insulin while you're in the womb and you're being exposed to that high insulin, you leave the womb with slightly higher insulin than you would have done otherwise. And then because you're already, it's a little bit high, then you're then going to be having a process that means you're, you're just going to be laying down more fat than someone who hasn't, hasn't been exposed to high insulin. And then after that, you've got this vicious cycle where insulin resistance gets progressively worse with time. Now multiply that by 18 years. By the time you're 18, you're already on your way to prediabetes just because you were born in, you were, you were in a womb that exposed you to more insulin. So what I want women to take away from that, and this, again, like I say, it's not a criticism, and we'll see this with women who've got um, gestational diabetes, that's not their fault. They've just got, they'll have high blood sugar and then that will spike insulin. But it is really relevant for all women who are pregnant because uh, there is this attitude amongst a lot of women where they think, oh, well, I'm going to get fat anyway. This is the one time in my life when I can eat what I want. If I want to eat a whole tub of ice cream, I'm going to do it now because, like I say, I'm going to, I'm going to be getting bigger and I'm, I'm eating for two now, so meh, whatever. That, that's precisely the wrong time to behaving like that because you need to keep your insulin really well controlled. And actually, even in the years leading up to getting pregnant, I really encourage women to think about their insulin levels or insulin resistance start doing some weight training, time-restricted eating or whatever. Don't do time-restricted eating when you're pregnant, but really, really think about it because the environment that you expose your unborn child to will literally affect the future diseases that they'll, they'll get. We know that they're much more prone to getting metabolic syndrome, so high um, blood fats, cholesterol, high blood pressure, um, obesity, all of these kinds of things that you're literally committing them to all of these diseases if you don't try to regulate your insulin. 
Um, so that's the one thing that I would say to women who are of childbearing age. And then in terms of parents with children, um, particularly if you think, oh, are they gaining a little bit of weight or they're looking a little bit bigger than their peers, take it seriously. And that doesn't mean talking to your child and saying you're overweight. Never tell a child they're overweight. They're too young to understand it. But you as a family all need to be really conscious of how you eat and try to adopt a really healthy lifestyle and use the glucose goddess tricks and don't just think oh well they're a kid they should be allowed to have loads of sugar and fruit juice and all kinds of things because they're growing it doesn't matter there is this culture where we think it's completely appropriate for children to get 70 percent of their calories from ultra processed foods and we throw loads of sweets at them and that's how we reward them for good behavior that's not appropriate they you're contributing to their future insulin resistance later on and one of the kindest things you can do for a child is to try to expose them to a childhood where healthy eating is the norm and they'll take that forward it's like like you as well if in your childhood you'd automatically been exposed to healthy eating you wouldn't have been put in this position so yeah that's one of my big takeaway points and it's quite it's something I'm quite passionate about I think that's an amazing message and I think that will help a lot of people um do you want to go into some different food swaps for example like for me if i'm using different flowers now i'll use chickpea flour as it oh, has yeah. a lot more protein and fiber do you have any examples like that that you would recommend to patients or you use in your own life yeah i mean the chickpea flour is a really great example um and that's something that tim Spector talks about specifically in his book food for life and i found it really from the geeky side of me found it really interesting because um, I'm trying to remember what it was he said, but I think there's something about the food matrix or the structure of the carbohydrates that are in chickpeas that our body can't metabolize properly. So we can't actually access all of the glucose that's in the chickpeas, even though there's a certain amount of starch, but it's not absorbing it properly. Uh, so if you add a little bit of chickpea flour to other bread recipes, you can reduce your blood sugar spike from that bread by 30%, which is incredible. Um, but other swaps, um, so... For me, I, I don't know if I've done a huge amount of specific swaps. I think it's been really conscious changes where... I'm avoiding really um, refined carbohydrates. Like I don't eat that much bread because I realized that was spiking my blood sugar dramatically. And I'm trying to use the different techniques um, that Jessie and Charles Bay went through in her book. But um, I was re I did have some swaps recommended on the Zoe app. I'm guessing you've heard of Zoe. Yep. Yeah, so I did that. And so I had my microbiome tested. And that's how I did the continuous glucose monitor test and my blood fat test. So it's really interesting. And some of the swaps that they were recommending were things like pearl barley, um, buckwheat, and those kinds of things. So all of those grains that can actually be much better for your gut microbiome and better for your blood sugar control as well. Awesome. And I saw one thing you really love is pomegranates. That's something I also I'm obsessed with love. pomegranates. They're so good for you. I mean, um, they're, they're obviously still fruit. They'll still spike your blood sugar and you're still getting the fructose. But I don't want yep. to scare your, your listeners away from fruit. You always remember that fruit is incredibly good for you, but you, you need to eat it in a way that will manage your blood sugar. So make sure that you've got a source of protein and fat and 
all of those kinds of other things. Maybe have some vinegar beforehand, go for a walk. Uh, and um, the other thing that we haven't touched on is food matrix. So um, that's the structure of food. And um, the important thing about the matrix is with the way the fiber um, is arranged in a, a piece of food that you haven't manipulated, um, that will affect how quickly you're able to absorb glucose and fructose from a food so if you eat a whole apple by itself um your blood sugar spike won't be as significant because you've got your stomach has to slowly break it down and you have all of this fiber which um will slow down the absorption when it does get into your intestines but if you blitz that apple up into a smoothie which is one thing i'm, I'm not into smoothies Mm -hmm. uh, you do the job of the stomach for it. So it's not going to sit in your stomach for very long. It means it's going to very rapidly be um, allowed to get into your intestines. And then because it's all been broken down and it's entered your intestines so quickly, you're going to get a really big blood sugar spike. Uh, and then um, if you go one step further and we've touched on fruit juice, if you remove all of that fiber and it's just the juice, then you're literally just exposing your intestines to this huge supply of sugar and usually the amount of apples you need to get a glass of fruit juice is crazy. Or the, the better example is oranges. In what scenario would you sit down and eat five or six oranges? You would never do that. But now that at least that would be a slow process because you'd have to chew them and it, your stomach would need to break them down. You skip that process by just drinking it and then you get this huge shot of blood sugar, which Tim Spector always comments when he did a test on his CGM, it was no better for him than a, a Coca-Cola. He had the exact same effect. Right. We haven't touched on protein at all. What are your thoughts or recommendations to patients for protein? With protein? Um, yeah, I'm kind of on the fence with protein. Um, and I, uh, I'm not an expert. I, I always kind of want to say to people, my disclaimer is I'm only a doctor. And you have to remember, really, doctors aren't given a huge amount of nutrition training. So I mean, my medical school did give us quite a lot compared to the average medical school, but um, it's not a big part of what we're trained in. A lot of what we do is focused on learning about diseases and medication. Um, but I've kind of just been very self-taught and I've done a few courses and I'm just very interested. But there's a huge debate going on about protein. And I think I could upset a lot of people potentially because, yeah, people have very strong opinions about it. So on the one side, a lot of people are saying, oh, you're not getting enough protein. You need to eat loads and loads of protein. And that's the only way to build muscle Blah, 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 blah. It's the only way to lose weight. Um, and then on the other side, uh, actually, people are acknowledging that it's very difficult to be protein deficient in in a in a Western country or any you know if you're not living in poverty, it's very unlikely that you're going to be deficient in protein. And if you overeat protein, it doesn't get stored anywhere in your body. It will just be laid down as fat. So that's the one thing that you have to remember that it. Yeah, it's not it's not a magic cure-all. But the great thing about protein is that it will fill you up. And one yeah. of the biggest issues for people who are struggling to lose weight 
is that they're they're not thinking about how to make themselves feel full. All they've ever been taught is that you need to restrict, you need to starve yourself. If you're feeling hungry, you're probably doing something right. It's all about willpower. Just force yourself to be hungry all of the time and then you'll lose all of the weight. But that is the completely wrong way to do it because our bodies are very intelligent and through evolution have loads of mechanisms to rebound and force you to gain loads of weight because they don't want you to starve and they, it, you know, the body doesn't want you to die. So it actually makes it incredibly difficult for you to lose weight. And so if you actually really do want to lose weight, I, I really recommend a book called The Full Diet by Sarah Hamid. And she basically explains how to eat in a way that will make you actually feel full. And it's when you feel full that you're not going to eat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and getting enough protein in every meal. So for every meal, I always suggest that you can see there's a good source of protein, there's a good source of healthy fat, and a really good source of fiber. And those are the key th- three key things that are going to make you feel full because protein will trigger your fullness hormone, PYY. Fat will trigger C- CCK, I think it's called. And um, the fiber will stretch your stomach, and it will also help to control your blood sugar and prevent the big yep. ghrelin spike. Yeah, yeah. What, what are your thoughts on protein? Have you had the kind of two different debates? So me personally, well, how you just explained it at the end, if you eat a meal with enough protein, healthy fats, and fiber, when I eat like that, I can go from meal to meal feeling completely satisfied and not wanting to snack in between. Me too. And, um, that's what works the best to me. So I try to get um, a pretty high amount of protein in throughout the day, and it's how I feel the best. And... It's how I noticed a lot of other people also feel feel really great and not feeling the need to snack and and do things like that. Yeah, and that, that works for me as well. I always know that I've got a good source of protein and I would never have a meal that didn't have any protein yeah. um, in it. Where I become a little bit twitchy is where food companies try to take advantage of this and they will get people to eat ultra-processed foods that are actually yeah. really bad for their gut microbiome uh, and the the reason they're able to sell it is because they say oh, it's got protein in it. Whereas actually, if you just ate real food and you had kind of full fat Greek yogurt or uh, beans or mm-hmm. meat and that kind of thing, then that's going to be a much better source of protein. Or eggs, my favorite protein yeah. are eggs, then that's going to be a much better source of protein for you. Yeah. So my my diet ninety ninety five percent is. Meat, fish, vegetables, fruit, yogurt, beans, lentils, um, and real fruits like that. And um, and I feel amazing. Yeah. No, you're doing all the right things. I think you would probably really like um, The Full Diet by um, Dr. Sarah Hamid because it is really interesting. Okay. I'll give it a read. Okay. I think we got through everything, but do you want to leave the audience with one of your favorite recipes that they should try this week? Favorite recipe. Um, yeah, okay. Um, oh, that's so difficult, though. So I suppose it depends on the time of year as well, doesn't it? And um, But the thing that I'm obsessed with now is kind of um, a type of minestrone-type soup where it's just lots of vegetables and beans. So you've got a huge plant variety in there. And you've got a source of protein through the beans um i put loads of extra virgin olive oil in so you've got a really good source of fat um and it's just so comforting and i probably love it so much because i've spent so much of my childhood in um in tuscany where it's such a big part of 
yeah, Tuscan cuisine. And also it's a big feature in the uh, one of the Blue Zones. Have you heard much about Blue Zones? I haven't watched that yet. But, yeah, uh, it's so good. It. It's really interesting. I, I read his book, bef- uh, Dan Buchner, before he did the documentary. And it's um, just him going around to all of the places in the world where people keep living well beyond 100 and kind of looking at some of the things that they're doing and how it works. And um, I think it's in, oh, where was it? Somewhere in Italy. Um, they eat lots of ministry. So that, that is a hugely comforting meal that I love. Awesome. It's been fun with you, Camila. Where can people find you if they want to see the recipes you're making? Or uh, So it's a really easy name to remember because it, it, it does what it says on the tin. It's called What Your Doctor Eats. And so whenever I tell my patients, I'm like, just remember it is what your doctor eats because it's literally what I eat. <laughs> yeah. So they're very welcome to take on, a look. On Instagram, you can find Dr. Camila. Yeah, on Instagram. Yeah. And I there's like it's such a huge topic, isn't it? All of the glucose stuff that I hope we've kind of just um started to tweak their interest and hopefully they'll be tempted to check out Glucose Revolution um and a few bits and pieces about their gut microbiome as well, because it can be so revolutionary for their health. I hope you all got something out of that amazing interview with Dr. Camila. I really love her ideas and I love seeing all the different things that she makes as a doctor on her Instagram page. So follow her there, check out her recipes and try some of them out. And I'll see you next week on the Find Your Nutrition podcast. Have a great day. Mm